episode 54, Patrick and Cyprian take a retrospective look at the past two years of Entangled Things. The team discuss the perhaps unlikely success of the format, learning to trust the math, recent chipset releases, and the surprises of the past two years. Welcome to Entangled Things, your quantum computing podcast, hosted by Patrick and Cyprian. Hey, Cyprian. Hey, Patrick. How are you doing? I'm good, especially given that this is going to be a very, very special episode of Entangled Things. They all feel kind of special, but there's been a lot of them. In fact, this is our second anniversary. What'd you get me? (laughs) (laughs) So uh, believe it or not, we've done over 50 episodes over two years. And I think that's the big measure, the staying power. We're going to keep doing this. They can't get rid of us, no matter what they do. Um, and so and we, apparently, we, uh, they, there is an audience for what we do. Uh, yes, yes. We have we have mo- well well over 10,000. I think we're over 12,000 now downloads. And for such a niche topic, it's that's been amazing. So uh, we'll keep slinging the, the content and the guests. But today, we don't have a guest. We're, we're keeping each other company. Uh, to kind of like look at a lo- what, what a long, strange journey it has been and what's changed since we started this podcast or or even just since last year. So um, I, I, if this was another topic, we might be like straining for things to talk about. This is actually too much to talk about. There's been a lot going on, release of chips and uh, people claiming that it's all a hype bubble and us refuting that and you know, lots and lots of very interesting people coming to talk to us, which is probably the biggest surprise. Um, you know, when, when you and I used to sit at conferences and talk and we noticed that we, we always gathered a crowd, um, we thought, well, we, maybe there's a podcast for this, you know? And, and so that, that, that's what we did, but that was probably five, six years ago that we first started talking about it. Um, is there anything that surprised you about this journey? Is it, is it, you know, that we keep not running out of stuff to talk about or what surprises you about the last two years? Well, it's not necessarily that we are not running out of stuff to talk because there is a lot happening, right, in quantum True. computing. It's it's more like the fact that uh, it, what honestly to me still seems an unlikely format proves to be successful, right? Talking about quantum computing um, with no with video. no visual aids. No slides, yeah. no diagrams, no nothing, right? Just uh, our two beautiful voices plus the voices of our guests, right? And and that still uh, uh, attracts uh, an, an audience. That for me is is the, the amazing kind of ingredient in, in, in all of this. I think it might actually help because we're not, you know, sometimes I see a diagram that's misleading or... You try to paint a picture that's imperfect. And, and so it leaves a lot for the mind of the listener to fill in the blanks. And this is a space that's so prone to, to need blank filling. You once shared an anecdote about um, you and your, your math mentor and how you had a breakthrough because uh, I don't know if you want to share the story, but the, the summary of it was that you, you had to stop trying to make it make sense. Yeah, it, it was my like early days of, of being uh, a, let's say, quantum mechanics, quantum physics uh, kind of amateur student. And I was like having a very, very hard time figuring out a lot of stuff like uh, 
uh, understanding some of the principles and and things like that. And basically, the advice that I've got, which was one of the most useful ones that I've ever got, was uh, try to forget about the why. Right? I, I was uh, trying to find. Uh, visuals and representations and explanations for what at the end are just the postulates upon everything is built, right? And the advice I got, like, just just go with the math, right? Uh, Accept that you're going to use a vector space. Accept that the the way to model what nature does is using the the various mathematical constructs. And and the moment I I started to do that, right, things started to kind of click together. You were in good company because Einstein had the same problem and never got over it. He he didn't trust the math. He couldn't accept that the world at the quantum level operated so differently. And and I had a conversation yesterday with um, Dwayne LaFlotte, who's my co-presenter in in my other podcast, Security This Week. And... um, we were talking about it and I, I came up with an analogy that I think helps. I said at the, at, in the world that we live in, a table isn't going to suddenly be on the other side of the room because all of the particles decided at that moment to move to the other side of the room because the probability is so low. It's kind of like the probability that everyone would touch their nose at the same time in the world. It's possible, but it's so unlikely. It's not going to be observed. It's never going to be something we observe. But when you get down to the individuals, yeah, people touch their nose all the time. It's not, it's not unusual. But for everybody to do it once would be amazingly, breathtakingly unusual and, and rare. And so that's the kind of way I bring my thought process. Try not to think about the table as why doesn't the table behave that way? But what I wouldn't expect every molecule of that table to all have a random event happen at the same time that caused the table to move someplace else. Yeah. So it's those yeah. kinds of things that kind of free you up from it. But we, yeah, I find that almost you say, everybody. It's like, it's, there is no, no zero probability associated with that, right? There That's is right. a very, very, very tiny probability, but yeah. it, it is so small that the likelihood of that happening, like, uh, you in, might have to wait a, a, a number, a, a Google Plex of years for it to ever actually happen yeah, yeah. which we we haven't had that much time but, but I, I i like what you said that the the lack of visuals and the lack of of powerpoint slides and things like that might actually work in our favor because i think it also forces us and our guests to try to keep things at a level uh that is uh let's say within the grasp of the audience that that is uh, at least understandable, right? In terms of yeah. what we try to say and some of the concepts we try to explain and so and, forth. And it keeps us out of the math, which, you know, the math is helpful, but when it isn't, it isn't. It really isn't. You know, we talk about um, vectors and vector spaces and things like that, but we don't get into the math. And a lot of times when I watch a YouTube video or things of that nature, um, the math can sometimes accelerate to a point where it loses a big part of the audience. Mm-hmm. Um, so w- let's talk about anything else that you want to talk about, but, but one of the things I would like to talk on before we finish today is the whole, um, chip process and, and, on, and the release that IBM has been doing of, of various chips over the last, um, couple of years since we started actually. 
Sure, I, I think that's one of the most interesting things that 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 happened, and I would also maybe add to that Patrick, the breakthrough that was finally confirmed uh, from from Microsoft with respect to mm. the uh, to the uh, Majorana zero modes that they yep. finally were able to to prove. But I think that would go still under the the topic of of, of building the actual uh, machines. I mean, a lot has happened in two years. We've gone from, I think when we first started, they were talking about 56 uh, qubit processors that IBM was working on or it was sell, about to sell. I think they sold one to Germany shortly after we started. Um, and now, you know, we're up over a thousand qubits. No, we're at 400 qubits, sorry. We're, uh, they're I expecting a thousand qubits. I think we're expecting a thousand by the end of this year. Yeah, just to, to, to be clear, those are physical qubits. They are. And yes, we don't know what the nature is. So I, I've mentioned this before on the show. There was a two reports that kind of gave me a Moore's Law feel for how fast that's changing. So there was a 2015 paper that said that in order to implement Shor's algorithm to break a RSA 2048, it, took, it would take a billion physical qubits. So we're way, way, way far away from that. But four short years later, another team recalculated and said it was going to be 20 million, which is a much smaller number. That's a big, big, that's faster than Moore's Law uh, in progress. Now, I haven't seen anything we're due for another one of those if that happens. But my bet is that since there's been so many implementations of um, better error correction and, and you know, ways to kind of like get more out of less. Um, I, I think that we, you know, we're, we're, I think we're less than a decade away from RSA being under serious threat. And there was actually somebody who claimed um, to, to have broken RSA, uh, uh, I think it was a Chinese team that said that they were going to, they could break RSA 2048. Um, and then I, I saw a rebuttal written by um, our friends at uh, PQ Shield that basically said that they they did something, they did some factoring with a very small number of qubits and they extrapolated in a way that really didn't didn't make sense to the scaling. So we also have to watch out for these faux breakthroughs, these these false, you know, breakthroughs, which we've seen before of people saying I have quantum supremacy here, quantum supremacy there. Um, we we have think, to wait a little bit. And I think also, um, if we talk about, let's say, projecting an equivalent of Moore's law into quantum computing, it's not really only about the speed at which we uh, increase the number of physical qubits. I think it also has to be correlated with the way we do error correction, with the mm. relative stability of these physical qubits, because that's also uh, on a decreasing slope, right? Ten years well, ago... Yeah. We, we needed like tens of thousands of physical qubits just to be able to simulate the logical one, right? And, and, yeah, that's, and that's decreasing quickly. So that's kind of a, a, a force multiplier. So if you can go from 500 to 1,000 qubits, but the error rates dropped precipitously, it's like going to 20,000 qubits or 100,000 qubits. It's a force multiplier. It, it makes them more effective, more useful. Um, and yes, so that's been yes. exciting. What I, what I have noticed is I haven't seen a lot of news uh, specific about we, we use the, the IBM chip to do this. And we, we use this, I, this size, the new IBM chip that came out, Osprey or whatever the names are, um, was a, allowed us to do this 
for the first time. I haven't seen that kind of direct attribution. Maybe I'm looking in the wrong places, though. Well, um, there is a little bit of, uh, I think, uh, on-purpose uncertainty. <laughs> That's mo- most of these of these chip builders are are leaving out there. Um, we don't really, don't really get the exact numbers, right? I mean, we know the, the you provided the example of the IBM chip, which I believe has four hundred and something. I think uh, four thirty three is the official yeah, number. Four thirty three, right? But they are not really saying um, how many logical qubits that would simulate. And the, yeah. the other thing is, if you kind of peel off some of the layers here. What you don't also get is the the connectivity between those qubits because if you're just thinking on like single qubits, that's fine, right? Applying gates to single qubits is fairly straightforward. But we know you can do, or in order to do universal quantum computing, you at least need a two-qubit gate, which is the CNOT gate. Mm-hmm. So the, the question always is... Um, in addition to, okay, what is the stability and how many qubits work together, how many physical qubits work together to get the, the logical ones? The question is also, what is the topology of applying two qubit gates to these qubits? Because even if we take the simple five qubit chip from, from IBM, right, not all combinations of those five qubits are actually valid to run a uh, a, a two uh, qubit gate on them. Not, which, not all paths are possible. Exactly, which which provides or actually enforces some serious limitations on the way you would be able to program them, the way you would be able to implement algorithms that would require massive applications of two qubit gates. Like, for example, right, going back to Shor's algorithm. Um, the, uh, the the quantum Fourier transform that is involved there, right, requires uh, uh, theoretically a massive number of, of, of such operations. So this is an, a, an additional, let's say, layer of complexity when we analyze these these chips, um, which unfortunately we need to 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 take into consideration. Yeah, it's. There, there are, we've had many guests on the show that have talked about actual things they're doing, whether they're doing automotive simulations or, or material science or actually physics. Remember Los Alamos National Laboratory came on and talked about discovering uh, a, something with monopoles uh, on a D-wave machine. So this, there's lots of things happening that we don't anticipate, um, but we all have this goal of, you know, universal quantum computing and being able to run Shor's algorithm. That's, that's where I spend a lot of my time thinking. Um, we also, yeah. what I, we didn't see a new algorithm taking the, the quantum world by storm, um, which we haven't seen in quite a long time. I don't know whether Grover's algorithm predates Shor's. I don't think it does, but it's been a long time since we've had another big one that's shaken up the world. We had a couple of shows where we talked about whether we should expect them to be, the, there to be new earth shattering algorithms. I, I do expect there to be another couple. I don't, I just always, when I first started studying this stuff, I thought there would be a new one every year. And that doesn't seem to be the case. Well, it's not. But then again, uh, remember that episode we did because we're doing a little bit of a retrospective here, right? 
Remember that episode we did, I think it was more than a year ago, with our uh, good friend Richard Campbell, when we were talking about <laughs> the similarities with classical computing. Yeah. There weren't many algorithms surfacing in the early days of classical computing either, right? Oh, so, I didn't think about that. Right, but but there really there really weren't, and and what the way I see it is, you will uh, reach kind of like a tipping point at, at at a certain moment in time when the infrastructure, quote unquote, that you require to run these things becomes valid, right? Becomes like like something that you can actually um, kind of experiment on and 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 work on. And I think that's the point where where these algorithms will 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 start to maybe surfacing in greater numbers. So remember Bob Koek, well, the first time he joined us, um, he talked about the fact that he had a chance meeting with a language expert who was had a. Ch it was just by chance that they had a conversation where he went in depth enough about quantum that the language expert said, "That's a grammar. I can build yeah. a grammar with that," and that's launched a whole. To a whole industry now of, you know, natural language processing with quantum, which I never thought about pairing together. And so maybe we need this to hit mainstream enough that we get enough of those minds that aren't in this space to figure out how this space can help their problems. Because and that's the, that's another frontier being broken down, like, like a new algorithm being invented. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then let me throw another ingredient into the mix here. Maybe I hope it's chocolate the chips. Algorithm <laughs> dimension is not going to be the dimension in which quantum computing will evolve in a spectacular way. Yes, it, it may right? be. Maybe have... it will. Maybe yep. it will evolve. Like uh, one of the things that that kind of were imprinted on my brain was that discussion that we had. I believe with our guests from Los Alamos National mm -hmm. Laboratory, where they were explaining how they actually use adiabatic quantum computing to do fundamental research in, 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 in physics, right? We yeah. did the programmable materials. That's not really an algorithm, like no. in the sense that we, we regard algorithms. So I would not rule out the possibility of, let's say, um, universal quantum computing based on algorithms being just one of the many facets that quantum computing will bring to this world. And it might not even be the pervading one. Uh, it's, so, it's absolutely possible. That interesting you put it that way. I, I think that the, the algorithms that we have so far are disruptive. So if I, if I were to talk about Shores, Shores is more disruptive than creative. It's, and Grover's may be the same way. And so... If I had to tell somebody, if somebody said, well, what's the most important thing for humanity that quantum computing is going to deliver? I would probably say it's material science. And that's not going to be, that's not going to be uh, driven by a single algorithm or even a handful of algorithms. It's going to be, it's going to be driven by simulations and, and implementation. So I think you're right. Maybe we've, I've been focusing on algorithms too much and I'm coming to the awareness that they're important and they can be disruptive and they can make a lot of headlines and they can force a lot of funding because I think Shores has been responsible for most of the funding that we're seeing today. Nothing, nothing gets dollars like a threat or a potential especially threat. government uh, exactly uh, funding yeah so maybe shores has been so important because it's focused the, the the resources and the money and 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 helps us you know drive it forward 
But I think material science, and I've said this to you before in private, I don't know if I've said it on the show, the only thing that really differentiates the sci-fi that we consume from our own society is the material science that they have. When we imagine a space elevator, we need the tether to be lighter and stronger than anything we've had so far. We, when we think about, you know, wearables and we think about, you know, space travel and we think about, you know, efficiencies, superconductors, all that stuff is material science. And that's where this is going to move forward, helping chemistry. And I, I just don't hear enough about it because maybe I'm not reading the right areas or maybe it's going to move a little slower than, than we would hope. Uh, definitely. And, and look, the other thing that I was reflecting upon as we move into our third year, like, like <laughs> doesn't that sound amazing? Like our third year of the podcast, right? But I was reflecting on how my kind of uh, differential understanding between universal or circuit-based quantum computing and adiabatic quantum computing has evolved in time, right? In, in like in my early days, I regarded these two as being uh, fundamentally different, right? And, mm-hmm. and in, in reality, the more I, I, I learn about it, both from our guests uh, uh, in the podcast, but also by, by uh, learning about uh, uh, it through scientific papers and, and various types of sources, I realized that maybe they are not so different after all, right? At the end of the day, we do have uh, uh, the mathematic proof that adiabatic computing can be equivalent, quantum computing can be equivalent to circuit-based ones. And, and this is where this kind of touches what you mentioned, Patrick. Uh, I think the material science most likely is going to use more of the adiabatic quantum computing approaches rather than the the, the circuit-based ones. We've seen that. We talked to Elisabetta from One Qubit, and she talked about the fact that they were doing calculations and optimizations for material science, for chemistry. And, and, you know, it's it's almost like it's a simplistic, the simplistic way to explain it would be to say adiabatic is a simpler form of quantum computing. But it's, yeah. and, it, and that must be true because it's gone a lot further, but it still has enormous impacts on optimization problems. And a lot of the world is an optimization problem. Yeah. And, and then the, the other thing is, right, you, if you think about the evolution of quantum computing as a function, right, in time, you never know where the inflection point will be. Um, one of the examples that, like in hindsight, is, is, is truly remarkable. Right. And, and people sometimes don't realize, sometimes do not realize this, like between the first flight of the Wright brothers and the first jet engine, the time span was really a little bit over three decades. Yeah. And then between that first jet engine and the moon landing, the time span was, again, a little bit over three decades. Which is amazing. So, it's like as as I said in hindsight, it's, 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 it's just just completely fascinating. So hopefully we'll be around like uh, uh, in in a decade or so, right? And we will say, hey Patrick, remember what we were saying circa twenty twenty two, twenty twenty three about quantum computing? Look where this ended up. Well, if if we take a simplistic view of Moore's law, 
where the more transistors, it's kind of shifted from transistors to cores and function and power. Um, <clears throat> Moore's law is doubling of power every 18 months, doubling of capacity every 18 months, right? Um, if you just take the error correction out of it and just say that the error correction is what it is, um, IBM alone is forcing us down a faster road than Moore's law. Because if you look at their release cycle, it seems like every year they're putting out a chip at the end of the year, that's twice as powerful as in, in terms of number of physical qubits. Mm-hmm. That's faster than Moore's law. That's more than Moore's law. That means yeah. that we're going to go to a thousand qubits this year. And they're talking about 4,000 qubits in 2024, which is a quadrupling. So the, the curve is actually, even Moore's law was a little bit faster than um, exponential growth. Yeah. Yep. So as we get the error corrections down, it, it seems reasonable to think that it's going to get better. What I, one of the concerns I have is a lot of people take a look at the environment now and say, well, we're so far away from, you know, this becoming, you know, fulfilling the hype that, that we're, you know, we're, we're getting ahead of ourselves. I don't think that's the case. I think there's a more of a danger, especially when Shor's algorithm is taken into consideration, that we're not thinking about the possibility enough. So uh, to take a a bad example, I'm a military guy, so I think about this stuff. When when we pulled out of Afghanistan, the United States thought that, you know, we have time. No one thought of the scenario, the unlikely scenario, but possible scenario that the uh, indigenous forces would just collapse and 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 basically change sides right away. Um, that we could have the same thing here with quantum if we have big breakthroughs over the next half decade. By the end of this decade, we might see RSA 2048 actually vulnerable to quantum computers that are available and, and be in operation. Um, so I think that there's there's an urgency in some circles, but there's also a laissez-fairness in other circles that I think is not warranted. So um, it, it's kind of a dangerous thing. It's kind of like, like um, we see the same thing in fusion. You know, that we just had a breakthrough in fusion. But everybody's like, cool your jets. We're still a long way away. And that's true. Um, and I think that it until is. We, we are still. We aren't. <laughs> until suddenly we aren't. Yeah. Until suddenly it's, you know, we had three breakthroughs in a single year that we didn't expect. And now suddenly uh, we're not ready for, for that future. So um, I probably and then think. The, the other parallel with, with, with the history of computer science that I like to, to bring into this is the, the, the GPU, right? Remember before 2010, like GPUs were something that were almost exclusively the realm of uh, computer games and mm-hmm. and like video simulations and, and yeah. video processing and everything, right? And then all of the sudden, in like two or three years, They're some everywhere. amazing artificial intelligence and machine learning capabilities were unlocked when people realized, hey. We're, what we need here is a dumb core <laughs> that can do just floating point operations. And okay. guess what? The GPUs provide us tens of thousands of these cores as opposed to the still limited number of like all-purpose CPU cores, which are still in the tens, right? It's like all of a sudden, uh, the way we used existing hardware <laughs> yeah. completely changed the paradigm. And... I wouldn't exclude that in quantum computing either. What if at some point a group of scientists comes up and says, look, we just looked at this stuff from a completely different angle and we realized 
we can do this or that, right? And that's that's not to be ruled out. That's true. You might even find a, an application where the errors don't get in the way. For example. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and, and, and that kind of brings us to the topic that I mentioned at the, at, at the beginning, right? Where, like, um, what happens if, and, and I, I, I like the way you frame that, what happens if, like, overnight, overnight being, I don't know, three, five years, we find ourselves with capabilities of thousands or tens of thousands of stable uh, qubits? Uh, Microsoft's right? working hard to make that a reality right? I, if their Mayana qubit works out. And I'm thinking here, to be very honest, right, about the topological approach yeah. that, that, that Microsoft backs, uh, which at as of today, it's still very difficult to uh, put in practice, right? But we almost know for certain that once you have the first qubit that works in a topological quantum computing, the road to 100, to 1,000, to 100,000 is going to be almost linear because of the way that, that, that those are built, right? So what if this, 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 this kind of process accelerates in the next three to five years? So Common knowledge five years ago was that electric cars were going to take many decades before they could surpass gas cars. And then Tesla came in, and now that doesn't look like conventional logic anymore. And I think we have disruptive, disruption is the way to think about this, is Microsoft has got this industry that's already disrupting the world, quantum, and IBM, you know, no no one ever got fired for buying IBM, that's the old saying. And they're saying, well, what if we could do it a different way? What if, what if we could take a long cut that ended up being a shortcut? What if we could take a fundamentally different approach from everyone else, a big gamble, big risk, a multi-billion dollar gamble, but what if that produced us to a point where we caught up with everybody and then passed them because errors weren't, I won't say they weren't a thing, but that's the real advantage of the Majorana pathway is because it's topological, there's really very little that can get in the way. Noise, heat. Um, I don't know. They, uh, does the Microsoft model, it works at a very low temperature as well because the topological um, matter only exists at very it's, low temperatures. It, it still needs the low temperature because one of the big components of the whole setup is a basically uh, a superconducting nanowire. Right, and to 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 get that that superconducting nanowire, you 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 still need. I mean, we're not yet good at getting superconductors at anything else than very very low temperatures. We have like, like I mean, in general, right? We yeah, have, but but that's a material science problem that might get solved by a quantum computer in the next five to ten years. If we got yeah. a if we got a quantum if we got a a, a, a if we got a wire but like you described that worked at, at negative 40 Celsius. That would be amazingly warm, right? That's the same as 40, negative 40 Fahrenheit. We had that at Mount Washington here. I had more than that recently. So that would be a game changer because now the errors would probably go to zero or, or very low because you wouldn't be down in the, in the millikelvin range. So we're really yeah. not that many breakthroughs away from this being a whole different game. And Microsoft's is one of the ones that you and I have chosen to watch quite a bit. We've had prior relationships with Microsoft. You you still have a pretty tight relationship with them. And and it they've taken such a novel approach because they've decided to go 
through the mountains instead. And it could be a huge shortcut or they might get, they might never make it out. And, and I think that's so audacious and that's where discovery, you know, lands. So I'm very happy that we have somebody deep pocketed enough to do this kind of research because I don't see any university ever being able to do it. Of course. Um, and, and that's the other interesting parallel, right? If you look, if you look through, uh, you mentioned one of the interesting things that happened in, in, in this second years of uh, second year of our podcast, right, was one of the strong kind of anti quantum quantum computing messages that were were were, were published, and uh, and we've covered that I think in yeah. in a couple of, of our of our episodes that that was an, a very interesting angle. But if you're looking at the history of say AI and machine learning, right, we've already had like two AI winters where. Funding dried out, interests almost dried out, uh, projects kind of decreased significantly in numbers and, and so forth. So I wouldn't be surprised, to be very honest with you, right, to have the evolution of quantum computing exhibiting the same types of, uh, not AI, but quantum winters. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised at all. And then there is the other interesting thing that I believe uh, is fundamentally different today from, say, the early days of, of, of classical computing. In the early days of classical computing, the world wasn't a big connected social media ball, yeah. right? And it is today. So today it's very easy to create hype, to create FUD, uh, to kind of create the wrong expectations, uh, to position yourself as a startup that has quantum in its name, yet you are, I don't know, selling groceries and things like that. So it's also a big difference in terms of how information travels in our society and what are the incentives for disinformation and misinformation. I think until Shores, until the world moves on from uh, encryption protocols that are vulnerable to Shores, um, I think that the funding will continue because I think it's part of the arms race between the super the great powers. So unless, unless, you know, the, the great powers, China and Russia decide to like, you know, stop playing the game and cede the territory, which I don't see happening, even though they're, they're pretty wounded right now. Um, I think we've got the funding now the, we're not predicting, we're not advising, you know, we're not, we're not espousing that you should invest in any, anything. But I do think that the interest it is still an arms race going on here. So I think we still have, you know, the better part of half a decade uh, uh, where the money is going to still come in and it's going to have knock on effects. Um, but I, I hadn't thought about the winter thing. I think it is possible for there to be too much hype and for things to cool down, but not to die. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's what your that's your exactly. point. Exactly, and I, I like your your I like a lot your your analogy or your reference, right? To okay, it's still an arm race because there is interest, right? Think about getting to the moon, mm. right? It was like like uh, a like it was an arms race. It was a geopolitical arms race, race, neck to neck, right? Yep. Uh, huge budgets being poured into it. The moment the race was won by the United States, by NASA, right? No one's all been back to the sudden, moon <laughs> All of the sudden, all interest disappeared, right? Yeah. And yeah. we've had, I don't know which one was, I think it was 17, Apollo 17, the last mission yeah. that, that, that reached the, 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 the moon, right? And then 
we're now like maybe what 50 years later or well, whatever we still it, haven't it, returned it's but, very yeah. but we are planning now to return so right. it it cooled down but it never disappeared right well it's still a frontier that we i mean it's kind of sad that most of the people who walked on the moon have passed there's still a couple left but not many and so yeah. there'll be a new generation i don't think quantum's going to have I mean, yes, will quantum probably cool off if we get past the the quant the encryption thing and we haven't gotten to a point where it's taken off? But I think D-Wave has already shown that there's business usages here. There's there's things that quantum can do, even if we don't have a big breakthrough with the Majorana or with noise reduction. Um, it's still we're doing real work now already with it, with Kubo's and and calculating. Um, you know, efficiency spaces and things like that. Yeah. And then also there is the the current geopolitical context, right? Mm -hmm. Where one of the kind of big uh, drivers, big forces in quantum, which is China, right? Is kind of on a collision course with uh, the United States and, and in, in general with the, with the, what we call Western society, right? And that has also, while it's unfortunate, like from a, geopolitical point of view that this is happening, this is most likely going to, to, to fuel this. And it's because you can't afford the other side, right, getting the breakthroughs and you kind of losing momentum yeah. on, on, on that. So that's something that probably will push um, uh, quantum computing to continue uh, uh, being funded. So there's also a rate limiting that's built into it. So so you and I were at a conference uh, a little more than a year ago. That I think it was more than a year ago that you and I were at a conference together. And we were talking to a lot of the speakers. And some of them are the smartest people I know. And a couple of times, a couple of people who I consider literally some of the smartest people I know were like, you know what? This is too much for me. I just, I, I, I'm just going to step out of this conversation because my, my brain's going to melt. And this isn't like some of the other things like HTML development, where there was a really big demand, there was a lot, a lot of high pay and a lot of money flowing into it. And you could learn how to do HTML very quickly and very easily. And then it brought the prices down because people flock to it. I want people to flock to this, but there's a barrier to entry because the math scares people, the physics scares people, people like you know, kind of scratch their heads. Even smart people say, scratch their head and say, I can't understand this. I'm not going to understand this. I'd rather step away than fail. And so we have this, we need really smart people and we need really persistent people to get into this field, but you don't have to be a super genius. You have to suspend your disbelief and, and then kind of like, like you did. And so I think that's the trick is it's going to limit how many people come into this industry. It's not a permeable membrane, not because there's need inside. It's because there's fewer people who will stay the course to learn enough about this stuff to actually work in the industry. Or we have to wait until it matures enough so that you don't have to understand much about this underlying principles to do stuff with it. For example, yeah. right now, I, I don't see you programming with D-Wave or with a with universal gates unless you understand superpositions and things like that. I think we're a long way away from from mitigating that all away from things. Absolutely. And and that's where the the the, the building of the the kind of end-to-end -end stacks and frameworks becomes extremely important, right? Hmm. Um, the fact that we have the 
Keyskits and the uh, Q sharps, uh, and, uh, right? The circs of the world is already extremely important because, like, again, looking back at, at classical computing, right? Programming against the wall <laughs> uh, was never something that 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 would uh, uh, kind of last forever, right? Yeah. And it would never scale. And I think it's pretty much the same thing until we keep doing. Like uh, if we talk about the, the circuit-based part, until we keep doing the the Pauli gates and the C naught gates and the uh, yeah. uh, whatever Adamard else. gates, right? That's not going to scale on one hand, and on the other hand, it's really difficult to think about algorithms when you are programming at at that level, at almost a binary level. We're we're, right? we're it's, still it's, at the binary programming level. It's 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 a, it's a very very low level. So that's where yeah. I was so happy in, in, in the year that passed to see more and more initiatives around um, education, around uh, kind of dissemination of the core fundamental concepts. Uh, and I think we had at some point one guest who I absolutely love. Well, I love all our guests, just to yeah. be clear, but for the specific task that the guest was doing, which was teaching high school kids. Yes, about about quantum computing in terms of where the education goes in this space that was the highlight of the year for yeah. me right having someone who was bold enough and managed to pull off the necessary kind of strings in terms of the overall context to get to teach high school kids this like i'm a big fan of of mandalorian right the famous oh, quote yeah. is this is the way. This is the right? way. That's right. right. But I, uh, you're violating the way. I can see your face right now. So, <laughs> well, it's been a great two years. It's been an amazing last year. And I think we're coming up on 40 minutes for our podcast and we should probably call it. Anything else you want to say before we uh, end this um, historic second anniversary episode? Well, nothing except the obvious. Um, first and foremost, like a, an enormous thank you to our audience right? and our guests the, uh, uh, and our guests, obviously, right? On one hand, the, our audience kind of uh, uh, keep moving on with us. And I hope it's, it's uh, pretty much a, uh, the same type of great journey for them as it is for, for both of us. And then again, on the other side, obviously, our guests who are the ones that really uh, uh, I can imagine are the ones that uh, provide the quality yeah. uh, that uh, continues to draw the the audience to our to our podcast. I think we're slowly moving into uh, a very exquisite class of long lasting podcasts in quantum yes. computing. Yeah, when we first started, we looked at other quantum podcasts and we found a lot of them. You know, did like an episode a week, and then an episode a month, and then an episode a year, and then. And it's hard. It's it's difficult. We have an incredible support staff, Jill and Aaron. Oh, yeah. um, you know, yeah, they don't yeah, they're yeah. Un, the unsung heroes. You and I get to kind of just show up and talk. Uh without them, there wouldn't be a podcast. So we have a thanks thanks to them as well. But I always um, say that that uh, uh the, the recipe for a successful podcast is probably half of it is hosts and guests, but probably half or even more of it is the supporting system. team, because otherwise things would not happen like week in, week out. That's right. Um, it's it's amazing. Like the, the the work our support staff is doing is is just simply put amazing. So we're thankful to everybody. 
please keep listening. Keep telling people about the podcast. Let's educate the world about this stuff. And thanks for joining us.